the message this morning is entitled Into His Hands and it's taken out of Psalm 31 that we're going to read in just a few moments, at least the first eight verses. It's a, it's a longer psalm, but I've just taken the first eight verses to really focus on the hands of God in our life. And the thing that we should put the most into His hand is our sense of shame and guilt and transgression that we're not made to deal with shame and the pain or the, the doubt of how does God see me alone. That he says, put those things into my hand. And I think about the, the uh, editorial cartoon in this morning's Post and Courier uh, focusing on Mother's Day and it shows a uh, a mother sitting down and the door is just swung open and a little boy with muddy feet and muddy hands is tromping across the floor and he's leaving mud marks along the door and the wall and he gives her a flower. And in many ways, that's us. That we are not here because we're good people. We're here because of a good Savior. If we came here, if we came here because we were good and perfect and holy, it'd be an empty church. We know our sin, and many of us carry a sense of shame because of it. But with dirty hands, this morning we make our approach to the man at God's right hand, and we give them again to him, and he takes away the stain of guilt and the residual of shame as we're freshly reminded that we're his sons and daughters through Christ Jesus. Okay, that's the sermon. That's the, uh, that's the homily this morning. So uh, the rest of you can now just uh, go to sleep and let me get through my notes. But um, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Psalm 31. And then we're going to look at it a little bit deeper, particularly for application this morning. And I'm going to begin with the prelude to the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a broad place. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. These, if you look at verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit, those are very famous or often said last words when men and women are approaching death. 
In fact, those words, and I've listed just a couple of individuals such as Bernard of Clairvaux and Huss and Luther and Melanchthon, those words were their last words as they closed their eyes into death. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And they're famously Jesus' last words on the cross. Into your hands, your hands, I commit. I commit my spirit. I commit me and all that I am. In fact, these words may not be your last spoken words, but if I'm the officiant, the clergy, or another, if it's a denomination that is conducting or officiating your funeral service, those words will be heard. They will probably be at the graveside where the last words that are spoken are not a eulogy of your life. That's in the memorial service. The last words are not commending your life of worth and value to God, but out of mercy and yet faith, saying, despite my life, despite all of my actions, despite the cumulative total of all my life, Lord, I commit me. Lord, I commit, if I officiate over the graveside, I'll say, Lord, you know, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, I commit this soul unto your hands, unto the resurrection of the dead. And then we walk away. This morning, if you look at David, I want to start this morning by talking about his first words, the prelude. Look at verse 31. To the choir master. That would be Brian, our worship leader. He's our choir master this morning and on staff is our choir master. And so I would be like David communicating this last week to Brian, the worship leader, and say, I've got a great idea for a song. And I want the whole congregation to sing it. I've written out the lyrics, and I want you to set it to music, and it is going to be rocking. And Brian's going to take, and he's going to read these words, and he's going to say, this is not typically like the Psalms. This is not a psalm of praise. It's not a psalm of exaltation. It's a psalm saying, apart from God, I'm shameful. It's a psalm, as it were, of how do you deal with shame. And he wants the whole community to sing about it. This last week, um, I found on my desk in the office a journal. And I knew automatically that it must be a girl's journal. Uh, lots of pink swirls and everything else. And so, if you're going to return a journal to someone you're going to have to break down and look into it. So with great fear and trepidation, I open it up, not wanting to read any woman or girl's secrets. And so I open it up, and I saw a journal entry there, and I began to read, and I saw not only one last week's full sermon notes. Um, uh, this, I, I mean, the notes were so full, I thought, wow, 
I'm reminded of everything I preach now. But I saw the previous week's sermon notes in that. And I was, I thought, wow, this is, this is great. What a, what a great journal. Now, I started this morning to bring my journal into here and maybe even read a little excerpt, but I don't trust you. I don't trust you, seriously. I, I mean, I love you, and I trust you a lot, but I don't trust you in my journal. One of you guys could get my journal. If I, if I read from it and then I put it down here, when I'm visiting with a few of you at the end of the service, you could get my journal and I'd be out of a job. Now, I've coded my journal. I don't think you can figure out my code because even, you know, I'm doubling up. So if it does fall in the wrong hands, those things that make me ashamed to reread them, I can't trust at times my heart won't allow me to trust the community of friends that I have with those things indeed my heart tells me don't even trust your family with these secrets but David said David said verse 1 in you O Lord do I take refuge let me never be put to shame and when he said those words he doesn't list the things okay he doesn't list what it is that he's shameful for but most commentators agree that it was it had to do with his son Absalom David lost his son Absalom because he committed adultery with Bathsheba had a child born out of wedlock where he killed Bathsheba's husband making it look like an accident not in order to have Bathsheba but in order to try to clean up his messes behind him these things became known in all of Israel and God told David he said yes you are an apple of my eye yes you are the king that I put on the throne yes you are my beloved, but the sword will never leave your household. Your kids are going to pay a price for your actions. And to his shame, he watched as his kids spun out of control, even so much so that Absalom eventually would, on the top of the palace, his dad running for his life, running for his life, he basically dethroned his father and then advertised it with some pretty shameful events on top of the palace and so when David says let me never be put to shame let me not be troubled by that shame it's not that he's in denial everybody would have known they would have looked at him they would have said look at that guy he's the adulterer look at that guy he's the guy that he said he had to send when he abdicated the throne because he was thrown off by his son. He eventually sent troops after his son and they murdered his son. He said, let me not be put to shame. Let me not be troubled by shame. Let me not have my journal for all to see except the words marked over all of that is that I am delivered because of the righteousness of God. In other words, let me not be ashamed of shame that has been dealt with. Okay? 
So if you want an application point this morning, something that you begin to say, you know, what is it? What's the takeaway? What's the, the takeaway? And again, I don't really do themes, so this is not a Mother Day sermon. Hate to disappoint you. But there's, it's to not be ashamed of shame. Every one of us this morning struggles with some sense of shame. Some of us struggle with it every day. Maybe something you did in your teen years. Maybe something that was done to you. Some of us don't, we're not troubled by shame every day, but like a, kind of like a brain cloud. You know, Joe in the volcano, you got a brain cloud. Kind of like a brain cloud over us. It just, it'll kind of float in. And there are certain seasons that it bothers us and then it'll float away. But it creates and it plants this seed of doubt, as it were. How does God see me? I had a, um, I had a gentleman that I was talking to, and it's been a couple of months ago. This is an older gentleman. And he said when he was a young man, he had a homosexual encounter with a leader from his school with a leader from his school and on his part it was totally sexual experimentation and he says I know that it was wrong I do feel like I was manipulated but he says I was aware of my actions but he said I have struggled with that all my life so that I feel like a failure and he said, I know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I know that I'm dearly loved by God. But when it comes to this, I feel like I'm so worthless. And I just can't help but think that God agrees. David says, because we all struggle with shame, and because doubts can drive us to think that God agrees, that you should be shameful about that, that that in that area right there, we need to stop being ashamed of being ashamed because God doesn't agree. And He wants you to give your shame to Him. He wants you to put it into His hand. Okay. Now, I intentionally had a longer introduction because I want the next four points or just be descriptors to encourage you to do this. I'm not asking for a month. I'm not asking for all year. I know that that's too much to ask for even me. But I'm asking for the next week, the next week that you will deal with shame. I don't know if it means going back to look in your own journal if you have one or not. I don't know if it means you identifying something that it lingers or it troubles you every day or it comes in and it comes out, but it lingers as something saying, in this area, I feel like a failure. In this area, I feel like a loser. In this area, I feel shameful. In this area, I think God agrees with me. I want you to consider what it is, and I want you to put it into God's hands. And I want you to see what God does when your shame, from your actions. Usually shame is something that is very secretive or something that's outside of the nines when it comes to sin. You know, it's something maybe extraordinary, maybe a one-time thing, or maybe something that we go back to, but it's, it tends to be something we don't trust with the community. We don't trust with one another. David is saying here, we need to be restored both to God to know that He sees us as righteous, and then we need to be a community that sings about it. 
not to glory in our shame. He doesn't tell you specifically what his shame is. We don't have to tell one another the things that we're ashamed of. But how do you deal with people in this fellowship who have things that they're ashamed of? Are you ashamed of them? Or are you saying, no, I know how God deals with shame because I know how he deals with me. It's something worth singing about that my shame has been dealt with and I am shameful no more. I'm not, I'm not treating my, my, my past indifferently. I'm not, just, I'm not going into self-denial and I'm not justifying my actions, but I am moving on to say in God's eyes, he sees me and my identity is not one as a leper, but as one that is healed and now placed in right community with God and with one another. What kind of hands are you putting your shame into? Well, first of all, you're putting your hand, your, your shame in the hands that it says in verse 3 that leads and guides. Okay? Now, I'm going to just tick through these for, a point of, for points of uh, further application. Um, it's interesting that he says both. In the Psalms, while it is poetic in many places, uh, and it's, it's the Bible's hymn book, it, it doesn't wax eloquent. In other words, there's no useless words. Here, there's two words, double words, almost as if it takes two hands for our shame. In one hand, he says, it's hand that leads us. In the other hand, it's a hand that guides us. And there is a difference. When you lead someone, I think of leading someone as taking them by the hand. And when you guide someone, I think more verbally or written. We could say that God leads us through, you know, by taking us by the hand, by making it very personal, very personal. Perhaps it's through the Holy Spirit. Perhaps it's through the community of faith. Maybe he leads us because you've given permission and trust to someone in this congregation that you would say, this is where I'm struggling this is an issue in my life. Or would you watch my life and give me counsel? Or would you help hold me accountable? Or would you give me encouragement? Would you lead me? And God leads us through others. He also leads us through the, the small voice of the Holy Spirit. But he guides us through his word. I had a gentleman just about two weeks ago that called me and um, don't worry, you're not going to be used as a sermon illustration. I generally use people that are outside the congregation, kind of our larger congregation that's not necessarily in attendance on Sunday morning. And he called me and, and he said, I'm really struggling with an issue here because I've fallen in love for the first time in my life and she's in Charlotte and I'm here and I just don't know how I can get from here to there and uh, it's very frustrated. And I said, well... And he says, I don't know what God wants me to do. And I said, well, it's pretty easy. I said, you need to get back on the trail and you need to let God's word guide you in the right thing. Well, that's just the thing, Pastor. That's why I'm calling you because I, I, don't, I don't see in God's word how to get from Charleston to Charlotte to this person that I now have fallen in love with. And I'm like, well, the first thing that the Bible says is you need to go to your wife here in Charleston because you're still married. <laughs> and this person is still married. 
So before we start talking about this, we've got to start back and we've got to be guided by God's word as far as the right actions. And so God's word guides us. And you may say, now what does this have to do with a hand in my shame? Look at verse 1. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God... Now, David is talking prior to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross by his life and his death and his resurrection for us. His life in place of our life. But do you believe that right now when God looks at you, he declares it in his word? Will you be guided by that? If so, then you will trust that hand to say, I can give him all of my shame. And now I will only be ashamed when I'm ashamed. Again, not treating sin frivolously, but not allowing shame to cause us to have doubts as to how God sees us. Secondly, notice that it's a hand that frees us. If you see verse 4, you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. You see, God's word can convict us. It can really challenge us. But it, and, and to some degrees, it can condemn us. But God, by his grace and his mercy, delivers us. Now, we have a tendency, when we read the word trap, to think about... (laughs) We tend to think about, when we think about a trap, we think about this. Now, I've caught about 50 of these little fellows in this trap. And to release it, I would just... Wait, I'm not going to release it. But the trap that is mentioned in verse 4 is more of a binding trap. It's more of a... It's like a net, a fowler's net, that you wouldn't be... It wouldn't be as easy to come along as in this squirrel cage, after the service, I'm going to take it outside since I live over on Clements Ferry. I'm going to release it over here in Park Circle. Now, in my mind, these things are not much more than a glorified rat. Um, Okay, even though it looks so cute and so little, but the idea is, is that we tend to think about God freeing us from a trap. It's just so easy. But realize that we have gotten ourselves in that trap. The trap is the, the subtle temptation or the lure, the attractiveness of sin and finding fulfillment there rather than in God. In the Lord's Prayer, we say, Lord, deliver me from temptation. When we're not delivered from temptation, when, God, when we refuse to take the hand that would lead and guide us away from the trap, when we, like lost sheep, have all gone astray, we fall into the trap. And God, by rights, could come along and say, stay there until you perish. But He doesn't. Because He's a God who, out of His justice and out of His mercy, He comes to us And he frees us. He sets us free. Um, I don't want you to be distracted by that little guy. 
would you set me free if you found out my stuff? Will you set another person free when you find out their stuff? What if it's something approaching heinous? There, there was a Scottish minister, and this would have been like in the 1880s, who was preparing to go to a new congregation, and he had had a very checkered past. And someone, one of the elders in that church, who had concerns about him being in that pulpit, wrote him a lengthy letter and said, if you get into that pulpit, if you climb into that pulpit, and their pulpits were very elevated, if you climb into that pulpit on Sunday morning, then I'm going to say what your, your life looks like. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and he spelled it all in detail. And the minister was initially ashamed. And he said, you're right. You're right. And so he had decided to not preach in the church. Toward the end of the week, he changed. And he went to the pulpit on Sunday morning. And he could see the gentleman who had written him that personal letter as if he were to say, okay, I'm going to expose you. I'm going to expose you. And he stepped to the pulpit and he unfolded the letter and he read it himself. I don't know how the congregation reacted, but are we a congregation who sets people free because we have been set free? How do you deal with people that sin outside of your category of sin. In the 70s, in my ministry in the 70s, I began, uh, I mean, excuse me, in the 80s, I began to deal with people who began to visit our church who struggled with AIDS. In the 90s, we saw, uh, and also those who had had abortions. And then in the 90s, we began to see uh, the homosexual community that began to, we had some, uh, out of the homosexual community that began to worship with us. What is it going to be in this century? What about sexual offenders? Where do they worship? Many times they are worshiping today in very large churches where they can be totally anonymous, fearful, fearful that they might be found out by that very community that has been set free of their own sins. Now again, I'm not trying to justify any behavior but when Christ, when God sets us free from the traps that our own we have bit on, and we, when he sets us free out of his mercy, then he looks and he says, as you have been forgiven, now forgive others. The, last, uh, the next last is worthy of trust. And here, uh, these are the famous words, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And then he goes on, he says something that sounds rather harsh. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. We've got, we've got to have something to place our spirit's trust in. When our spirit is troubled, we've got to have some kind of God. And usually it's a God of our own design. But <clears throat> with shame in particular, when you struggle with shame, one of the biggest temptations, one of the biggest gods of our own design 
are addictions. Dr. Ed Welch wrote a book called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. And his thesis was this, that if you have a family member or you yourself struggle with an addictive nature, or if you have an addiction, his thesis is it's a form of worship. Number one, you're looking to experience something by participating in it. The high or the feeling of euphoria or the depressing effect that it will have upon that troubling part of your brain. I want to forget for a little while who I am, so I'm going to take a drink or I'm going to take drugs or I'm going to, to go into pornography or I'm going to go into gambling. I'm going to do something to escape for a little while to transcend, as it were, from my current circumstances. That's trusting in a false god. It's a form of worship. You're looking to it with some degree of faith that it will continue to work for you. And David's saying, I hate that about that. He's not simply saying, I hate the participants. I hate that temptation because of the shame that results because it just draws people in and destroys their lives. And if any of you have a family member who's addicted, you understand that hate is not too strong a word for whatever it is that they're addicted to. You see how it creates shame in their life and it will destroy them. And David comes along and he says, look, we have a God whose hands are worthy they're worthy. They're, they're worship. They're, we, we can worship those hands. We can put our spirit into those hands, no matter the shame that we have. No matter. There is nothing too great to place into those hands. We can trust Him for our deliverance. This morning... We're going to come to this table. And there's one point left to mention, and that is the hand of the enemy. But there's really not a lot that I can say about it. For you see, when it says there in verse 8 that we are delivered from the hands of the enemy and we're not placed in the custody of that enemy, but our feet are put in a broad place. It's as if to say that our sense of shame and those deeds, as it were, in the dark that haunt us, they're not going to, if we had them in our hands, they're not going to be turned over so that we're turned in by God and placed in the custody of a torturer or a jailer or an executioner. In other words, we can trust those hands if they won't turn us right over as we rightfully deserve to the hands of our enemy. How can we say that? How can we say that? Because there was one, Jesus. We will never be turned over to the hands of the enemy. That's why I don't have a lot to say about the hands of the enemy. We'll never, if you're a follower of Christ, we'll never face the hands of the enemy because Jesus Christ turned his hands over where he was bound, he was treated shamefully, 
And on the cross, he recites verse 5. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit, but not the second part. The word for redeemed is rescued. It doesn't necessarily define atonement uh, there. It's not talking about a blood sacrifice that was made. He's basically saying on the cross, Father, as I'm dying into your hands, I commit my spirit. But I'm not claiming the second part of that verse that you must rescue me because I'm one of the redeemed. He's saying, because I know that you won't rescue me in this situation because I am facing all shame on the cross. All shame. Even to the turning away of God in order that others may not. That you will never have to deal with your shame without Christ who understands the depths of it again. Never. Do you know who the real choir master is? It's not David. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who would teach us to sing this song that in him there is no more shame. And it doesn't cause us to go light on sin. Indeed, it causes us to sing as the unashamed, to sing as the unashamed because our shame has been dealt with by him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you set aside these elements that we might see broken bread and poured out wine as the very symbols of a body that was bound, of hands that were bound, of hands that were pierced, of hands that were looked upon in their dirt and blood and grime as being very shameful, as being that of a criminal as being that is the worst offender possible. And Father, even when you turned your eyes to Jesus, you saw the sin of the world, every sin possibly imaginable. And now you tell us that our hands will never be bound, that we'll never be treated shamefully, we'll never be treated as those that are worthless when we put into your hands our spirit when we put into those crucified hands our life when we put there our sin and ask for fresh pardon and grace and strength to live as your sons and daughters the unashamed who are now free and free to sing about it use these elements to that end we pray in Christ's name Amen